You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. One way to understand neurodiversity is to think in terms of human operating systems instead of diagnostic labels like dyslexia and ADHD. The brain is, above all, a marvelously adaptive organism, adept at maximizing its chances of success even in the face of daunting limitations. Just because a computer is not running Windows doesn't mean that it's broken. Not all the features of atypical human operating systems are bugs. By autistic standards, the normal brain is easily distractible, is obsessively social, and suffers from a deficit of attention to detail and routine. Thus, people on the spectrum experience the neurotypical world as relentlessly unpredictable and chaotic, perpetually turned up too loud, and full of people who have little respect for personal space. Imagine if society had put off the issue of civil rights until the genetics of race were sorted out or denied wheelchair users access to public buildings while insisting that someday, with the help of science, everyone will be able to walk. Viewed as a form of disability that is relatively common, rather than as a baffling enigma, autism is not so baffling after all. Designing appropriate forms of support and accommodation is not beyond our capabilities as a society, as the history of the disability rights movement proves. But first we have to learn to think more intelligently about people who think differently. Steve Silberman has covered science and culture for Wired magazine and other publications for more than 20 years. His new book is Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Thank you. It's great to be here. Steve, this is such an interesting book because, for me at least, it looks to the power of story and the way we define ourselves using story and narratives and the way that those definitions and those narratives and stories play out over lifetimes and through civilizations and cultures. And this is the story of how the definition of one sort of mentality, one way of looking at the world has changed the way a lot of people have looked at themselves and at the world. Definitely. And one of the reasons why I thought it was so important to tell the history of autism as a story was that uh, most of the details of how the scope of the diagnosis has changed radically over the decades, and I mean really radically. The kids who would have gotten a diagnosis in uh, the 1950s was, were a much smaller group than not just the kids, but the teenagers and adults who can get an autism diagnosis now. The problem with that story was that all the details were in like obscure medical journals and details, uh, you know, sort of shared between clinicians with specialized vocabulary. But everybody needs to understand this story because it affects so much how we look at the contemporary world. You start with the uh, what you call the geek syndrome. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is interesting, uh, a, a great perception, and because people were worried, there was this 
perception of autism as an epidemic, like an illness that had struck, was running through our civilization, almost like Ebola, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, that was how I got interested in autism, was um, basically what happened was in uh, 2001, I think it was, I was on a boat in Alaska with more than 100 computer programmers. It was called a Geek Cruise. It was a uh, chance to have a technology conference in a more interesting setting than like a Holiday Inn in Pittsburgh or whatever. So we were all on a boat <laughs> cruising towards the Arctic Circle in Alaska. And before we got off the boat, I asked sort of the star of the cruise, this uh, very well-known computer programmer named Larry Wall, if I could interview him at home in Silicon Valley. And he said, yeah, sure. Um, I should tell you, I have an autistic daughter. And I didn't know hardly anything about autism beyond what I'd seen in the movie Rain Man at that point. So his remark didn't really register too much. But then a few months later, I was writing about a different technologically very adept family in Silicon Valley. And I asked the sister-in-law of the woman I was profiling for Wired if I could interview her at home. And she said, yeah, sure. By the way, we have an autistic daughter. And I thought, God, that's a funny coincidence. I thought autism was very rare because back then, and by back then I mean just 2001, so not that long ago, autism was still considered a very rare condition. So I was telling that story about those two conversations to a friend of mine in a cafe in San Francisco, and a woman at the next table said, oh my God, do you realize what's going on? And I said, what's going on? And she said, I'm a special education teacher in Silicon Valley. There's an epidemic of autism in Silicon Valley. Something terrible is happening to our children. So I got, you know, sort of a chill uh, because I was a science writer. I got the desire to figure out if that was really true. I wrote an article called The Geek Syndrome in 2001 that came out in Wired. And it was sort of the first mainstream media article to look at autism in high-tech communities. And... The problem was that <clears throat> I continued to get email for like 10 years about that article. And, uh, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. Most magazine articles are usually forgotten in you know, a week or so. Uh, and it, most of the email was from families of autistic people or autistic people themselves describing the problems that they face in day-to-day -day life. And they were very, very real, immediate, serious problems like... They couldn't get access to health care, or if they were parents of autistic kids, they were telling me that their kids would automatically age out of services once they graduated high school. Or if it was an autistic person writing me, they would say, well, you know, I don't understand it because I was told that I was very, very bright when I was very young, but now I can't get a job because I can't make it through an interview because I don't make a good personal impression in an interview. And so these were, you know, a set of very concrete problems in living day to day. Meanwhile, the entire world was talking about autism, but they were talking about something else. They were talking about, do vaccines cause autism? And so this was sort of in the heyday of Jenny McCarthy and this uh, British gastroenterologist named uh, Andrew Wakefield claimed that uh, the MMR vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella uh, caused autism. And so the whole world was having this very angry argument about whether or not vaccines cause autism. But autistic people and their families were dealing with a completely different set of problems. And what I noticed 
was that even in, you know, big mainstream publications like the New York Times, they always described the uh, spike in diagnoses of autism that started in the in the late 90s as a mystery, you know, a baffling enigma, as I just said, uh, a, uh, you know, a puzzle. So I thought, really? Like, does no one actually know why these numbers are going up? So I started probing into the history of autism, and it took me all the way back from before uh, the, the word autism was even coined and applied to people. And uh, so that's what my book is. It's basically the long arc of how the autism diagnosis developed and changed. When you were talking about this raging debate, one of the things I thought that was interesting that your book discusses is science versus publicity about science. Yeah, and that's true. we like to think that they're the same thing. They're absolutely not the same thing, are yeah. they? No, they're not. And you know, oftentimes, um, well, it's a common problem in media, and as a science journalist, I'm sort of aware of every side of that issue, that complex or nuanced scientific findings get misrepresented in the media. So let's say that there is a, uh, a new drug that showed promise in a very limited trial of this drug against cancer. What happens is that when that study comes out, the scientists, if they're good scientists, will say, well, actually, this was, you know, a small study. It was only, only looked at eight people. And in fact, you know, four of them actually, you know, their cancer progressed anyway. So they, in the paper that's peer-reviewed, they'll make all these qualifications, but none of that gets out in the news. What's the headline? New cure for cancer. You know, <laughs> and so that stuff happens all the time. Um, and it happens in autism really a lot. So that I'll give you a good example. Uh, many of your listeners will have heard the term Asperger syndrome, which is usually used to describe autistic people who are highly verbal uh, and maybe uh, extremely intelligent, but have problems making sense of subtle social cues in conversation. And so, uh, and they may have trouble figuring out how someone else is feeling, who they're talking to. So Asperger's syndrome, the diagnosis was only invented in the, in the uh, 1980s. Uh, so it started appearing in the news in the early 1990s. And I found the very first reference to Asperger's syndrome in a newspaper, and what was the lead? The lead was, it is the plague of those unable to feel. Well, if you know any people with Asperger's <laughs> syndrome, they can have very intense feelings, in fact, and they may, in fact, be intensely concerned about how the people around them are feeling. They just can't read the little cues and body language that tells them, like, if the person is interested in talking to them, you know, so they have trouble making sense of social cues, but that is hardly being unable to feel. And that kind of, you know, problem of misinterpretation and drastic oversimplification comes up again and again in the history of autism and thus in my book. And also, science itself is a process of disproving old beliefs and replacing them with new beliefs achieved through new research, which doubles the, our suspicion of what we think we know and what we come to learn. And so there's a, a constant sense of doubt and anxiety, I think, in the public, bred by science 
to an extent that science looks at this stuff as good. The public thinks, oh, my God. Right. No, that's definitely true. And also there there are big understandings of, of uh, or big misunderstandings of vocabulary. For instance, scientists talk about theories. So we talk about the theory of evolution. And so, you know, people who don't believe in evolution now will say, ah, it's just a theory, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just a theory, but it's based on an unbelievable amount of evidence, you know. And so, but people hear theory and they think, oh, they're not sure about that, you know. And so um, there's a constant problem with translation between the specialized vocabulary of science and research and what the mainstream public understands. And as I said, like in my book, one of the main things that I tried to do was to express a lot of um, subtle changes that had happened in the scope and focus of the autism diagnosis that had only been expressed in the specialized vocabulary of science journals, and not even just science journals, but because autism was mistakenly considered so rare for so long, they were these kind of niche science journals that hardly anyone read. Like, you know, there would be like 15 people, you know, who would read every issue. But that wouldn't percolate out to the mainstream public. So I tried to write about the evolution of autism science in language that anyone could understand. Now, one of the things that you talk about are early examples of autism before it was even mentioned. And I'd like you to, to discuss the, the man in England. Oh, yeah, Henry Cavendish. <laughs> Henry Cambridge. Yeah. What a great character. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, no, he was a great character. And, and let me make, too, that one of the things I think you do very well in this book is create these great characters who we can really identify with. And that's a, a this book is full of wonderful writerly skill Thank in you. terms of creating character arcs and, and embedding those arcs in the larger arc of the reader's coming understanding of autism. Oh, and I think that this is a very crafty book that is super engaging to read. So take us into the first character that we really get to know, Henry Cavendish. Okay, great. Well, here's the deal. Henry Cavendish was um, – he was – uh, alive in the uh, towards the end of the 18th century, and he was a very very odd man. Um, he took the same walk around his neighborhood every day along the same route at the same time. He wore the same outfit every day. When it would wear out, he would instruct his tailor to create an identical one. He ate the same dish at virtually every meal, leg of mutton. And so, what a psychiatrist would say is that. He had a very routinized lifestyle, and that is one of the possible signposts of autism. However, there was no diagnosis of autism at the time, and that actually turns out not to be the most interesting thing about Henry Cavendish at all. The most interesting thing about Henry Cavendish was that he was a world-class scientist before the word scientist even existed. They called him a natural philosopher, and he turned his entire house into a, like a laboratory where he could do pioneering work in chemistry, physics, musicology, math, and many, many other fields. In he was almost like Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, without the monster. Without the monster, yeah. right. But what, what he did was he, um, among other many important discoveries, he um, accurately gauged the density of the Earth from a shed in his backyard 
by using this apparatus of, of pulleys and weights and microscopes that he built. And his, his estimate of the density of the Earth was so accurate that nobody could create a more accurate one for like another hundred years. So Henry Cavendish was not just a scientist. He was really one of the founding fathers of many different fields of modern science. Yet, at the same time, he was so odd and he was so uh, discomfited by uh, sort of social contact and parties and, you know, like there's a story about him. He liked to be around people, but slightly at a distance. So he would go to these <laughs> gatherings of these other scientists and he would stand off to the side with his eyes averted. And people thought that he, you know, that he wasn't listening because he wasn't looking at them in the eye. But in fact, what he was doing was he was listening really intensely. And if he was autistic, as the neurologist Oliver Sacks, the late neurologist Oliver Sacks, believed, what he was doing actually was he wasn't looking in people's eyes so he could use the processing power in his brain to really understand what they were saying. And so his friends would say, oh, yes, Henry, you know, top, you know, top natural philosopher, but kind of a weird guy, you know. So there were there were there were no words to describe what his condition was. He would um, he so disliked talking to people and he so disliked surprises that when he was surprised in the hallway of his estate by a maid who was carrying a broom, he had a second staircase built so that would never happen again. <laughs> and he would communicate with the servants with notes left on a table rather than talking to them. So in short, he was a very socially awkward guy, but he was also completely brilliant. And Oliver Sacks, uh, who was the author of An Anthropologist on Mars and The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, saw Cavendish as an early example of Asperger's syndrome in both that you could say in both the impaired and enhanced ways in that he was uh, socially very awkward, but he was scientifically very advanced in part because he was able to carry out these routines so precisely. So figuring out the density of the earth uh, required him to do the same like painstaking measurements in the shed in his backyard, like day after day after day, exactly the same way. And so Oliver pointed out <coughs> that Henry Cavendish would not have been able to do the work that he did that was so pioneering in science if he hadn't had the characteristics of Asperger's syndrome. Um, and so one of the main points of the book is that people tend to see autism mistakenly as a product of the modern world. And so, you know, now, like, there have been so many studies about vaccines that it's really only, uh, you know, people who are... Uh, really, you know, unwilling to give up that idea, who still believe that vaccines cause autism. But, you know, then people say, well, it's GMOs or, well, it's Wi-Fi or, well, it's, you know, there are a million theories. The truth of the matter is that autistic people have always been here and have always been part of society, but they were invisible. Or not part of a society. Or not, a, yeah, right, just standing off to the side. Yeah. Yep. Now, one of the things you mentioned is that I thought it was really interesting that he described his own thoughts as essentially geometrical. And that's something that that's exactly the way that Temple Grandin yeah. describes her thoughts. There's yeah. that through line from one to the next. I mean, that he there there 
thought patterns are not the same as ours. Right. And I think that's really a fascinating observation. Right, right. And actually, uh, the guy who said his thoughts were essentially uh, geometrical was a physicist named uh, Paul Dirac. Paul Dirac, who was, right. Who was one of the founders of quantum physics. And... Um, Yes, he too was very socially awkward, uh, but <laughs> he too also made groundbreaking discoveries. And so, yes, here's the thing. You know, we look at a rainforest and we see all kinds of diversity of life going on there. We see, you know, birds and insects and plants. And we know that that's good, that that diversity is good because it makes the biological community more resilient and more adaptive to changing conditions. What we have not thought of until recently is that human brains may also be diverse. And what uh, Temple Grandin says is that her mother, who was very, very brave and kept Temple out of being institutionalized when she was told to put her daughter in an institution because her uh, behavior was so difficult to deal with when Temple was a little girl. What we haven't done generally is to look at uh, people who think differently as a form of diversity, and that's what neurodiversity is. And what Temple's mother told her was that she was different but not less. And we have to start looking at people with conditions like autism and dyslexia as different but not less. I think one of the things I thought was very interesting about Temple Grandin was that the way she has described the way she sees the world. And <laughs> science fiction is sort of a theme in this book. And it so is. I want to reach to that a little bit in that it seems that she's almost, in a, in a sense, a mutant in that her sight, sense of sight, and her sense of sound is really different than ours. It's much more intense. And that when... For us, when we look at a light, it's not so bright. Our eyes, you know, we can take it in. But if you have cataracts, maybe, then all the lights are kind of glowy and different. And if you're if you're autistic, maybe the way your brain processes the light is not the same. Right. And I right. think that 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 kind of um, intensity gives them a perception that allows them to see the world differently and make changes that somebody who sees the light normally could never even begin to think about. That's true. And one thing that I've noticed is that autistic people are really good at looking at problems from an angle that, you know, autistic people have a name for non-autistic people, neurotypicals. So I'm a neurotypical because I'm not autistic. And uh, autistic people have a way of looking at problems from different angles or noticing flaws or uh, picking up errors that neurotypical people just don't pick up on. And it could be that neurotypical people have brains that are so devoted to processing, you know, social signals and social relationships that they just don't have the brain power to notice these very fine details. And so Temple Grandin says that, like Henry Cavendish, she never could have done her work, which is she de she's one of the leading designers of livestock equipment for the livestock industry. And she says that she... Uh, is able to deeply empathize with animals. She's actually put it that she thinks like a cow. And that's one of the that's one of the reasons why she's so good at designing livestock facilities. Because to give a very concrete example, she went to a stockyard 
And uh, the owner told her that the cows, once they got to a certain place in this walkway, would always completely freak out. And he couldn't figure out why they were freaking out. And what she noticed was that there was a flag that was waving that was flapping and making this noise. And because the owner of the stockyard was neurotypical, he didn't even notice it. It was just like, oh, it's a flapping flag, whatever. But she noticed that the cows would hear it. And she herself has very sensitive hearing. Mm -hmm. They would hear it and panic. And so she basically told him, just like, put the flag somewhere else. And the cows stopped freaking out. And so, so that was a good example of how uh, Temple's ability to think differently and to see a problem from different angles enabled her to solve problems. And that's what she does for a living. Let's take this back to, I think, the modern beginning of the story and a man named Hans Asperger. What an amazing character you create and what an amazing story he has and a story that I think when you tell it, for one thing, as we see the transformation in Austria, it has some terrifying parallels to current day that that are outside the scope of the book to a certain extent. None, though. Let's just say the Nazis didn't like immigrants either. (laughs) They didn't like people who were different either. They didn't. Yeah. But uh, talk about how, who Asperger was and how he came to see not this problem as not just a very small problem, but as a bigger problem with what he called, I believe, a spectrum. He saw it back then. Yeah, he didn't actually use the word spectrum, but he and his colleagues used the word uh, continuum, the autistic Mm -hmm. continuum, which really uh, pre-foreshadows our concept of the spectrum. So Asperger was a a young clinician working in Austria at the University of Vienna uh, in the 1930s. And he and his colleagues created this clinic that was more than just a place where kids would get dropped off to go through a round of tests and, you know, get a diagnosis. It was like a clinic school. And not only that, it was residential. So the clinic staff would actually live with the kids, watch them eat, watch them play together or not play together. Um, he, Asperger would read poetry to the kids. So the clinic staff was able to observe these kids under a wide variety of what you might call ordinary living conditions. And so they were able to pick up on how the kids were adapting to people around them or not. And um, it was a very progressive place. Uh, Asperger would actually ask the kids about what methods of teaching they thought would work best for them. And so he learned from the kids. He wasn't just observing like these patients. He was actually consulting with the kids who he, who he compared to little professors. Um to uh, determine the best ways of educating them. And the reason why that was important was that his clinic was sort of a place of last resort for kids who had, uh, you know, basically failed out of school or had been kicked out of school for disruptive behavior, or some of them ended up there through the juvenile courts. And so it was sort of like their last chance. So Asperger and his colleagues were very highly motivated to find ways for these kids to thrive and succeed with whatever kinds of brains they had. And, and he, he was eliciting their stories from them yeah. and trying to understand their narratives from their perspective, yep. not impose his perspective. He was trying to get inside their heads so he could figure out what would work for them, which might not be what he would normally think would work. Right, right. 
Although Asperger himself was a very introverted teenager, and, you know, I sometimes wonder if Asperger didn't have the traits that we would now ascribe to Asperger syndrome. But in any case, um, uh, the main thing that unfortunately happened in 1938 was that the Germans marched in to Austria to annex the country for the German fatherland, and they immediately passed a bunch of so-called eugenics laws in keeping with the Nazi racial hygiene theory about uh, basically um, taking hereditary conditions like epilepsy and schizophrenia out of the gene pool by actually exterminating the people who carried those genes. And so what that meant for Asperger and his colleagues was that the kids in their clinic suddenly became targets of Nazi extermination uh, programs. And so Asperger suddenly went from being this guy in this clinic who worked in this very intimate way with these kids, uh, and his colleagues were also extremely sensitive and, and prescient about autism. Many of his colleagues had to leave um, uh, Austria because they were Jewish. And when the Germans took over, they, they basically purged Jews from universities. And so two of his closest colleagues, Ani Weiss and George Frankel, uh, were rescued by a clinician in America named Leo Connor. Now, here's the thing. Um, Connor would go on to uh, claim that he discovered autism, uh, and he also defined it very, very differently than Asperger had done. He defined it much more, more narrowly as a very, very rare form of childhood psychosis, and furthermore, he blamed it on bad parenting. And that was actually the model of autism that prevailed in the, in the world for decades in the 20th century. And what Connor never did was he never said, oh, by the way, I was working with two of As this guy Asperger's closest colleagues. Like he never acknowledged Asperger's contribution. Even though Leo Connor was considered the world's leading authority on autism, he never cited Asperger's landmark paper that was uh, written actually in the same year that Leo Connor's landmark paper was. So Connor became famous, Asperger became obscure, until a woman in England named Lorna Wing, who is the mother of what we now call the autism spectrum, um, went out to do one of the first studies of autism in the community and discovered that autism was not as narrow as Leo Connor had been saying it was for decades, and she knew that mothers had nothing to do with it because she herself was the mother of a profoundly disabled autistic girl. And so she knew that refrigerator mothers who had been blamed for autism for decades, she knew that that theory was wrong. But what she figured out also was that Leo Connor's theory that autism was rare was wrong also. And she figured that out by coming across Asperger's paper, which had never even been translated into English because Leo Connor had never mentioned it. And Luckily, her husband spoke German, translated the paper for her, and when Lorna Wing read it, she said, this is exactly what I'm seeing now in London. This, it's a spectrum. It's not this not, you know, narrow pigeonhole. And so it was actually Lorna Wing who changed the scope of the diagnosis to include the whole breadth of what we now call the autism spectrum. Lorna Wing is such a is another great character in this book, and I want to kind of ratchet back a little bit to Canner and uh, Bettelheim, who were who also these were the the 
parents, so to speak, of our first concept of autism, which was rare, extreme, completely disabling, and the responsibility of parents. And, right. and these two men took a very narrow, top-down approach, whereas Lorna Wing did a bottom-up exactly. approach. And right. so talk about the... the uh, um, heritage of what, especially it was Bettelheim, who was, I think, a little more responsible for the refrigerator mother aspect. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Leo Connor was, you know, he was a clinician. He was at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He mostly published in journals, although he was also uh, quoted in Time magazine. He was actually the, the first person to propose that parents were responsible for their children's autism, and that was in a... Um, an article in Time magazine in the in the 1940s, but it was what Bettelheim was was Bettelheim was one of the first sort of pop psychiatrists in America. In fact, he was probably the first. He was a best-selling author. He was sort of the Doctor Oz of his day, if you will. <laughs> and um, so he, you know, he was a celebrity. And Bettelheim took Leo Connor's theory of refrigerator parenting and made it famous. And he also made it more extreme. Bettelheim himself was a concentration camp survivor. And Bettelheim on the Dick Cavett show, which if you're as old as I am, you remember, um, said that he compared the mothers of autistic children to concentration camp commandants in their own homes. So Bettelheim had a really absolutely devastating effect on the families of autistic children. Because, uh, for one thing, he made them ashamed. For another thing, um, the standard uh, treatment for autism became institutionalization. Uh, and that was actually true starting with Connor. It was actually Connor who recommended institutionalization of autistic children. Um, for their own good, he said, because that would remove the child from the allegedly toxic you know, family environment, psychic family environment. Um, and because of Connor and Bettelheim's theory, families would actually be told by their psychiatrists or by their pediatricians never to speak of the child who they had put in an institution to quietly remove their photographs from the family album and move on with their lives. And so one reason why, you know, the, like the anti-vaccine people say, well, why is it that I never heard of autism? When I was growing up, I'm, you know, I'm a baby boomer. Why did I never hear of autism? Well, one reason why people didn't hear of autism was because parents were actually told by their, uh, you know, by their the most trusted people in their lives not to talk about the fact that they had an autistic child. The children, meanwhile, were put in, not, you know, it's not like there were luxurious autism wards anywhere. These kids were put onto adult psych wards and put in straitjackets and subjected to absolutely the most brutal treatments like, you know, they were zapped with electric cattle prods or given LSD. I mean, one of the uh, things that I do in the book is to talk about all the horrible quack treatments that autistic kids were subjected to in these institutions. And they were treated like adult psychotics and they were like six years old. So... Um, a whole generation, in fact, a couple of generations of autistic kids, uh, generally, uh, you know, sort of more severely disabled autistic kids, were put into institutions. Meanwhile, the kids who would later have been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and who we would now see as, uh, you know, intelligent but socially awkward, they often didn't get a diagnosis at all. And so I spoke to older people 
who were diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome late in their lives, like sometimes not until their 50s and 60s, and they had been struggling for decades. Like, they couldn't keep jobs, they couldn't find relationships, uh, they were told by their doctors that they were schizophrenic or depressed or bipolar or whatever. So what Lorna Wing did was she finally made the diagnosis of autism available to those people. And once you learn to recognize autistic traits, uh, Hans Asperger said, you see them everywhere. And it's definitely true. A lot of people, I mean, particularly when I was working at Wired, um, people in the technology industry, there are a lot of people with autistic traits. I'm not saying they're all autistic. I'm not saying they should all get a diagnosis. I'm saying that autistic traits are not rare. They're very common. And in fact, some of the people who have invented this you know, modern digital world that, by the way, enables us to communicate remotely so, like Henry Cavendish, we can talk to our friends without having to look them in the eye. Um, a lot of those people have autistic traits. And uh, so, you know, the, one of the things that Asperger was prescient about and that it's really important to know is that, Asper is that autism is not only not rare, it's super common, particularly if you're just talking about this very broad spectrum that sort of shades off into garden variety eccentricity. When you were talking, what I was thinking about was that how powerful your storytelling is and also how powerful the force of story is in this narrative because when these people are writing their children out of their albums, they're just editing their life stories and the how powerful the force of narrative was used to restrict the vision of, al of autism, to keep people them from being seen, to keep them from having a voice, and to keep people who are on this margin from being able to advance socially. Right. And one thing that kind of everybody forgets is that the autism diagnosis only became available to teenagers and adults very, very recently, only starting in America, for instance, only starting in 1984 with the introduction of the Asperger's syndrome diagnosis. And so, you know, Autistic adults was not a thing that was around when I was a kid because adults could not get the diagnosis. The people were around, but the diagnosis was not available to them. And so one of the misconceptions that has been spread by the anti-vaccine people is that, you know, autism used to be really, really rare. What was really rare was the ability to get an autism diagnosis not autistic people. They were common, like they still are. And so there are several groups that were locked out almost entirely of getting a diagnosis, uh, even besides teenagers and adults. For instance, women. Like, we, we're still at the very primitive beginnings of understanding what autism is like in women. And because Asperger did not write about women with autism, and because Connor only wrote about a very minor, a small minority of his patients who were women, autism in women was barely recognized for most of the 20th century. So autistic girls were not a thing because the girls still had the same challenges, but they could not get the label. And so another uh, group that was pretty much locked out of a diagnosis was people of color and poor people because Leo Connor believed and said that autism was a disorder of the 
middle to upper middle classes and particularly academic people. And if you think about it, what's interesting about that is that Asperger noticed... It's economically convenient. <laughs> yeah, it's economically convenient. And also, if you think about it, Asperger noticed that the parents of his autistic patients often had autistic traits themselves. Leo Connor probably noticed that too. But instead of saying, well, maybe autistic traits are actually a virtue in some fields like academia or science... Um, instead, he turned it into a negative thing, like these parents are cold, icy, you know, hyper-intellectual, hyper-ambitious people. But it could be that Connor and Asperger were looking at the same traits in the parents, but, but Asperger thought it was potentially a good thing, whereas Connor thought it was bad. And, the, and if you're just looking for autism in the upper middle class, that's where you'll see it. And so uh, for a long time... Families of color, and in fact, families of color still struggle to, to get a diagnosis. I was on a plane uh, just a couple weeks ago, with, and I had a long talk all the way across the country with a, a black woman who works on public policy, and she said that there was a common feeling in the black community that autism was a white thing. And is that because autism is less represented among black families? Not at all. But it's like a cultural belief that limits... Uh, our recognition of where the autism is. It's the ever-shifting and ever-changing story of autism that seems to be opening up. And as you say, this perception, and I think one of the things about this book that's kind of beautiful is the way it opens up into this perception of what you call neurodiversity, and the ultimately leads to this idea that you encapsulate in the title neurotribes that there are different groups of people we're all humans we can all learn to work together but we have to understand that we are not all cut from the same cloth and that every case is an individual case an individual story as well right and you know thinking of uh, autism or uh, other conditions like ADHD as a form of human diversity is very different from thinking of it as a disease of modern times, mm -hmm. like particularly with autism. You know, as I've said, like people tend to think that it's caused by something that's in, you know, has gone wrong in modern life. And it's certainly true that, you know, pesticides and uh, junk food and, you know, constant bombardment with uh, wireless signals, these things may be bad for us, but they're not what created this spike in autism or in autism diagnoses. What created the spike was actually a good thing, which was that we became aware of autism. We know what it looks like in all of its very broad manifestations. The diagnosis is now available to a much broader population of people than before. So yes, of course, the number of diagnoses have gone up, just like Lorna Wing hoped it would, because as an autism mom, she knew what it was to struggle with no help at all for your kids. And so now, uh, at least in you know some communities, there is a lot more help available uh, for autistic people and their families. But of necessity, that means that there are many, many more diagnoses than there were before. You know, one of the things that I loved as I was reading about um, Asperger was that he was not only ahead of his time, he was ahead of our time yes. in his perceptions of these things. And I yeah. thought that that was really a remarkable piece of characterization. 
Well, thank you. Yeah. And he was also, you know, in a very, very difficult position because his bosses were Nazis. So um, one of the misconceptions about Asperger was that he only saw four, quote unquote, high functioning cases. Um, and that's because he only wrote about four, quote unquote, high functioning cases in his paper. Why did he do that? Well, we now know because of research that I turned up for the book that he only told the Nazis about these four high-functioning cases, or most promising cases, as he put it, because they were exterminating the rest. They were exterminating the more disabled kids. Mm -hmm. So this attempt to save the lives of these kids ended up turning into a big scientific misconception. Um, and in fact, Asperger saw more than 200 kids from all points on the spectrum uh, in his work. And so one of the things that I've tried to do is to bring the wisdom that Asperger and his colleagues had in the 1930s before the Nazis marched in into the present day because we still need it. That's true because um, up till recently there has been a lot of look, looking people looking for what you call the biomed cure. And the, I think one of the uh, takeaways from this book is that we're not looking for a cure. We're looking for a way for a means of making the most of this. Uh, it's, a, it's a way, we're not going to cure people of this. We're going to find a way for them to make the most and for society to adapt to them, not a way uh, drug we're going to give them to make it go away. Right. And the thing is, you know, many families have found that uh, certain supplements or, or special diets have uh, proven helpful uh, to relieve their kids' Uh, most disturbing behaviors, and I'm not—I'm certainly not dissing that. But what I'm saying is, instead of looking at your kid as basically broken and as something that you have to try to fix with supplements and diets, look at the kid as basically whole and basically having gifts uh, and abilities that it is your job to help them discover and give them avenues for their creativity. And if, you know, if taking gluten out of their diet or giving them supplements relieves some of the ways that they might be uncomfortable, and particularly if they're nonverbal, you know, imagine having a stomach ache when you can't communicate that to the people around, around you. So I am not surprised that, you know, kids who are, say, gluten sensitive or whatever, you know, might end up uh, behaving better on a gluten-free diet. That's all great. I'm not dissing that. But what I'm saying is that instead of looking at autistic people as essentially broken, we should look at them as essentially whole and having gifts and virtues that they have to offer our society if we can make our society flexible enough to welcome them into our lives and into our workplaces and into our schools. This is really a remarkable piece of writing because it takes us on such a, a wonderful journey from uh, you know, a kind of your personal beginning to a, a, a really powerful vision of a diverse form of humanity. I'd like you to just talk about uh, crafting this. How long did it take you to do this? And, and was this a matter of like writing, diff discovering different parts and putting them on, you know, a timeline wall? So is there some kind of like wall in your house that's covered with all sorts of sticky notes and, and manuscripts? Yeah. Well, there were like many different timelines. Like uh, I have a, I had a whole World War II timeline because of Asperger. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was the hardest thing I've ever done. 
by far. Like basically everything else that I'd ever done in life was was like a vacation compared <laughs> to writing this book. This book took me six years. I was working about 80 hours a week the whole time. Um, there were days when the sun would rise and set outside my window, and it was, you know, it was like, I, I, whoa, another day just went by. You know, this went on for years. And, um, you know, obviously I was doing a tremendous amount of uh, research, uh, both interviewing people and also just digging through obscure documents and libraries and stuff. And so um, I was pretty much completely obsessed with autism for about six years. And um, the book was only supposed to take me a year and a half to write. That's what my publisher thought. That's what <laughs> Wired thought. But, you know, then five years later, there still I am plugging away, you know. But what I'm really glad is that um, even though it's a very long book, uh, I feel like, you know, I've always had somewhat of an ability to tell a good story. And I knew that if I embedded all the scientific information in a story that was thrilling so people would keep reading, like, you know, okay, let's face it. It's a thick book. You know, it's like 500 pages. No one's going to read it if it's boring. Like I could have written a, you know, a very scholarly book, but if it was boring, who would ever get to page 470, you know? So I had to make it a page turner. Um, and luckily, the story of autism turned out to be so intense and so exciting. I mean, it has, you know, it has uh, cool, you know, uh, pioneering science geniuses in it. It has, you know, profoundly disabled people who are struggling with, with uh, limitations in their environments. You have Nazis. You know, it's like it's an incredibly exciting story. So it's not like I had to sex up the story. The story was incredibly exciting, but I had to do justice to it. And that's what I tried to do with this narrative. I've been speaking with Steve Silverman. His new book is Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Thank you, buddy. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.